Hey friends, welcome to Worry Less, Wag More. This is the Behavior Vets Podcast. I'm your host, Ferdy Yao. Join me to dive into the thrills and challenges of treating pet behavior issues. I'll shine a light on science-based training that's effective and brings us closer to understanding the animals we share our lives with. Hello, everyone. Thank you and welcome back. Uh, we are so, so lucky today to have Patricia McConnell joining us on our podcast. Um, if you don't know who Patricia McConnell is, uh, well, uh, you should. <laughs> she is an ethologist who consulted with pet owners for over 30 years about serious behavioral problems. She taught the biology and philosophy of human animal relationships in the department of integrated biology at the university of wisconsin madison for 25 years and has spoken around the world about canine behavior and training so dr mcconnell is the author of 11 books including some of my favorites on training and behavioral problems um so these include the critically acclaimed books the Other End of a Leash, which is translated into 14 languages, For the Love of, the, of a Dog, and Tales of Two Species. Her newest book, The Education of Will, who I strongly recommend you <laughs> all read that, is a memoir focusing on healing from trauma in both people and dogs. Patricia and her husband live with their working, working border collies, Skip and Maggie, along with cats Nellie and Polly, and a very spoiled flock of sheep. So I'm going to post more of her information on our show notes. Um, you can read all of her bio, and you'll also get links to her uh, website, like uh, www.patriciamcconnell.com, where you can um, visit her blog. Um, okay, so um, I the last book I read... Uh, was the education of will, mm -hmm. and um, I want to talk to you about actually uh, about building developing resilience in dogs yeah. um, for a couple of reasons. Okay, uh, one, well, you know, I'm a trainer, um, and uh, I want to see dogs thrive. I don't want to see them unhappy, yeah. <laughs> miserable, uh, stressed. Um, but also, I also work at a uh, shelter here in New York, um, the Humane Society of Westchester. And, you know, I, I'm i only with these dogs for a very brief period of their lives. But I wish there was something I can do to help them because I know life is very stressful out there for dogs. Um, so I want to learn more about, well, how how you what your idea is in developing resiliency in dogs so can we dive right in um oh, can yeah. We, um yeah, yeah can we first like let, let's let's let me ask you um what is re resiliency um what does it look like to you yeah it's i mean that's a great place to start right how do you build resilience well what is it first of all well um you know i think we all have a general shared common sense knowledge of resilience it's it's just in the simplest form, it's just, it's the ability to bounce back from some kind of difficulty, right? Mm -hmm. my, my favorite analogy is thinking of physiological resilience. So just example, um, we're the sort of internal chemistry experiment going on all the time, right? And so 
we need we have boundaries about certain things like temperature and calcium load and you know the amount of phosphorus in our bodies etc so we have boundaries of sort of you know it can be this much or it can be that much in the set point in the middle sort of you know the ideal range is sort of right in the middle mm-hmm. and you can you know just temperature so you can start getting hotter and hotter and hotter and and then you cool off and you go back to you know the normal body temperature animals who i'm going to start with the sort of the opposite of resilience animals who lose resilience basically go past that point of homeostasis, go past that comfort zone, and they can't get back. And Mm. that's a lot of what trauma is. A lot of PTSD is based on individuals who physiologically and neurochemically and structurally are now different. They're changed. They're not the same as they were. You can do do all kinds of of, um, careful quantitative tests and, and um, different parts of their brains, the amygdala, for example, is larger and more active and the hippocampus is smaller. So, you know, once you sort of get past that point, you can't bounce back like a healthy rubber band, you've lost resilience. So resilience is getting, is, is being able to get back. So resilience is being attacked at the dog park or going into a shelter, right? Which is inherently a very stressful situation or even going into the vet clinic. I just took my dog Maggie into the clinic because she's limping mm-hmm. and um, they're still doing curbside pickup and it's a great clinic. I trust them completely, but I watched through the window, <laughs> watched through the door when they, you know, I handed her off at, at the door and they took her in and I watched her and she kept looking back and looking back and looking back. And it was just like, Oh, it's so horrible. Oh, right. But right? she came out, she was fine. Right. It was stressful for her, and but she's resilient enough, you know, that she bounced back and she was fine. So that's what we want. You, I love that you said you want dogs to thrive. You know, I mean, that's a wonderful word and a wonderful concept. And and I know you're doing that with all kinds of species of animals, which is and and humans too. That very complicated species of animals, yes. the hardest to train, right? But um, to thrive, to really thrive in your environment you do need to be resilient. And so, so first we need to understand what it is. Um, and then, I mean, we, you know, you see it in dogs all the time and it's, it's not just shelter dogs, it's pet dogs, animals who are living in some kind of a situation where they can't get back to that homeostasis. They can't get back to that comfort zone. And mm-hmm. it might be in a dog, it might be a dog who, who lives in a home with a lot of children and it's not the kind of dog who can handle that kind of chaos. You know, it might be a dog in a shelter, might be a dog who has found a wonderful home but grew up in a dark barn at a, on a chain and cannot cope with being walked around the neighborhood. So so that's that's what it is and isn't. Um, and the ways, do you want me to start talking about the ways to build it? Yes, please, go ahead. I want yeah, to know, you know what it looks like to you and what do you do to help a dog that you see that lacks resilience? Yeah, so you have a dog who's shut down or a dog who's, I mean, the the things I most look for are dogs who are shut down. They're sort of the easiest ones. But dogs who are overreactive, um, bar, 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 right? You know, sort of bark lungers on a leash to people or other dogs or a statue or a garbage truck or, you know, something that throws them off and they can't quite recover from that. Um, Excuse me. It's allergy season here in Wisconsin for some of us. 
So, um, but also dogs who are the dogs that I think are the hardest to, to categorize are the dogs who look uber friendly. They're just so friendly and they're so happy. And I mean, I've had these dogs when I was still seeing clients, I've had these dogs come into my office and they were bouncing everywhere and they jump on my desk and they knock over my computer and they knock over this and they jump on the chair and, and the owners would say, oh, they're just so happy. And, and my take was they're frantic. I don't know that they're happy, but they're frantic. When I was writing um, for the love of the dog about emotions and people and dogs, I was talking about shyness and I interviewed, got real into shyness in people. And I, I, I didn't interview her actually. I read about a woman who said, nobody knows I'm shy because I'm the person who goes to the party and can't stop talking. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and so that's that frantic category. So that's another thing I'll look for in dogs. So, so what do you do? Um, this is such a hot topic and it's such an important one. It's a real hot topic. I've talked about it a lot. I love that everybody's talking about it because it's so important. It hasn't been looked at that carefully until lately and now it is. But I just, this morning I was like, you know, I want to spend more time looking at resilience, building resilience in humans. You know, what do psychiatrists and psychologists have to say about that? So, so it was, it was really interesting trying to compare what, what is advised for people versus what is how we could how we could use that for dogs so one of the first things lots of different sites for people again talk about mm -hmm. is social support people need social support we are a social species right we all know that the almost the worst thing you can do to a person is put them in solitary confinement it is a form of torture there's no question about it in my mind, in the mind of many, many, many people. It is a form of torture, a brutal form of torture. Well, dogs, one of the reasons I think we have such an incredible relationship with dogs is that they too are highly, highly social. They are one of the most social mammals on earth. A lot of mammals aren't that social. We think of them as they are, but they're actually not. Dogs play at high levels as adults. They will take care of the young of others. I mean, they're super social, right? So here's a trick with, with dogs who, who have lost resilience. It's trying to figure out what social support means to them. And it's actually probably the same with people. You know, there's some people who the last thing they want is to be hugged and surrounded by people they sort of know and, you know, even to have people they see in the market say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your husband dying. It's like, just leave me alone. So that's one of the tricky things with dogs is, is you really need to know as much as you can about the dog to know what kind of social support they need. I think with the dog in a shelter, and I know a lot of shelters are doing this, I wouldn't be surprised, Fergie, if yours isn't, is um, put sending people in either in the exact kennel space of the dog or right close to it and just being there, just being there, not training, not trying to pat, which is such, so hard for some people to stop doing. <laughs> yeah, we, we are, we are just compulsive petters. We are compulsive touchers and it's really hard on a lot of dogs. We love to think that they love it, but they don't often. 
So just sitting, do you guys do that at your shelter? Just yeah, we do. We absolutely do, especially with the um, your dogs that you were talking about before, the uh, the dogs that are a little shut down, mm -hmm. that don't want to come out of the kennel. They're afraid to come out of the kennel. Um, we don't do so much with your super uber-friendly dogs, which I found so interesting that you're talking about that, because I think it, it's just a little scary for people mm -hmm. to sit in the kennel in a closed <laughs> space with a frantic dog. Um, but we absolutely do that with our uh, fearful dogs, uh, dogs that are shut down, just so that they become more familiar with us. Um, in fact, there was a there was a there was a dog. This was a few years ago at the shelter, a hound dog, um, like a probably a tree walker. Uh, sorry, tree walking hound. I forget what they're called. Um, anyway, uh, came from the south, was lived like chained for pretty much his whole entire life. Mm -hmm. When he came up to our shelter, uh, what he did was our in his kennel, there was an outdoor part and an indoor part, and he had access to both. He, he, whenever he had access to the outside, he would always sit outside, which faced um, a highway, Interstate 95. Um, now, the, the dog, his name is uh, um, his name is Hank or Henry. Now, um, he, when I, when I first interacted with him, or when I first realized how, I guess how fearful of noise he was. I didn't learn that until I actually sat in the kennel with him because every time I took him out of the kennel, he did nothing like any kind of noise. He, there was, he was so stoic, any kind of door slamming. He was completely stoic. He didn't see anything. Um, it was that, you know, he was, he looked shut down basically. He just mm -hmm. didn't do anything. But when I was actually in the kennel with him and then I heard, door slamming, uh, you know, the metal bowls clanging on the floor. That's when I first started to see him wince and startle mm -hmm. at every noise. Um, so I, I, I couldn't go anywhere with that dog for, I would say, about a month until I finally sat in the kennel with him just to be there with him. Right, right. It, I think... I think that's incredibly helpful. Um, with a lot of dogs, again, not all, you know, it's, they're, they're all different just like we are. The, the other kind of social support um, that I know a lot of people are using, the, the Behavior Rehab Center of the ASPCA has done a lot of research, as you know, on, mm -hmm. and they're a great resource, by the way, for veterinarians um, and anybody working with dogs who might have been stressed or might need some resilience built back up. Um, they're just an amazing resource. They've done a lot of research. And one of the things they found, they had a protocol when they first started bringing in these super, super shut down dogs. Um, one of their protocols was to, um, they didn't have people sit in their cages, but they brought the dogs out um, on leash and were sort of doing parallel walking with other dogs a mm -hmm. lot. And so a lot, you know, and again, it sort of depends on what they're used to, but an awful lot of dogs who are shut down, understandably are more comfortable with members of their own species, right? So that kind of social modeling and social support, I know a lot of my clients' dogs, I would, um, I would, for example, I would give treats to my dog while the other dog was 10 feet away. And just, it was just watching my dog getting treats. And it was like, that dog is comfortable and that dog is relaxed and that dog is fine. So I'll bet if she threw me a treat, maybe I could eat it too. And so again, so 
social support often means your own species. So that's another thing that's really important to look about. Um, so one of the other standard, um, sort of standard in human psychology and psychiatry um, ways to build resilience is to is to sort of help people do self-care, you know, so understand that you're sort of injured or damaged. Um, and so that's something that's that's easy in one sense for us to relay to dogs, but also a little trickier, you know, because what is it that they really need? And so the first thing I've said for years, and I talked about this in um, the education of Will, is dogs need a safe space. Mm -hmm. Dogs need to set a place that's safe. Um, so creating that, and you might have to create it. You know, you can't just put a dog in a crate and expect it to be happy, but, and it can take some time. But so creating the safest possible space where it feels like it, it has a shelter to go to. It has, um, you know, it has a place where it doesn't have to worry about physical harm or psychological harm, whether it be a back room or a crate, it's really important. And it's really important that you don't let visitors come in and bother it or kids come in and bother it. It's a safe space. So crate training is just, it's just, it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, you know, it never didn't occur to me until I was working with, um, with my psycho with my counselor, psychologist, um, as, as Ferdy knows, people who haven't read The Education of Will, it's about trauma, both me and my dogs. And one of the, the things that happened to me is I was molested by a relative and um, he would come into my bedroom at night. And one of the things that it just never occurred to me until I was thinking about dogs and safe spaces and talking to the psychologist, she said, your bedroom's supposed to be your safe space. You know, your bedroom yeah. is the place, right? Mm -hmm. Who worries about what people are thinking about you in your bedroom, right? So dogs need that. They really, really need that. And they also need, they need, they need um, usually a lot less sensory input. They need a dampening down of sensory input. They need a way, place away from the television. You know, I think about, I have a relatively new border collie. I've had him over a year. I still call him the new dog, right? Because it's all relative. You call the young one the puppy, right? Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so Skip came from Ireland and um, and he lived, he was a working sheepdog and he lived in a barn or a kennel of some kind. Um, and and I think about him and when he's in the living room and we have some TV show on, you know, and it's like, what is, you know, and there's drama, you know, what, you know, what is that noise doing to him? You know, and there are times I'll just put him in his crate because I think he's honestly just tired. He's just tired. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. when I respond to something on TV, I'll go like, oh, no, and Skip runs up to me. It's like, what? What? You know, what is it? It's like, oh, no, it's just TV. It's fine. Well, I can't explain that to him, you know. So dampening down of sound, one of the things that, oh, man, if I was a goddess, I would create a wor world in which shelters could be quieter, because in, and prisons could be quieter yeah. and hospitals could be quieter, which hospitals are starting to work on that. Prisons are not and and shelters are. But I think most shelters have a long way to go. You know, just that clanging noise of all that metal is awful. It's horrible. You know, yeah. put I mean, ask a 
donor to buy you metal bowls with rubber on the bottom. You know, they're way more expensive, right? But, you know, how noisy is it when you open and shut the doors, you know, and the kennel doors? It's just the more dampening down that can be done, the better. It's great to play music. That's wonderful. Um, but I think a lot of that other noise is really problematic. Obviously, barking is an issue. You know, we could talk about that later if you want to. But so um, so that's that's one way to feel like to, for, for a dog to feel like it's being taken care of, you know, because they mm -hmm. can't take care of themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that point you made about, you know, just dampening down the sensory input is so is such a uh, important point because it really is like, you know, just trying to turn your own brain off can sometimes be so hard. I mean, yeah. I think every one of us experienced, you're trying to go to sleep, but your brain just won't stop. Right. <laughs> right? Right. Um, right. And, uh, and yeah, so do you think dogs, you know, they're experiencing something similar to that when they just don't have anywhere where they can, you know, just turn things off and just be quiet? Yeah, it's all oh, what a question, huh? You know, we're starting to learn a tiny bit about what goes on in the mind of the dog, thanks to people who train them to. Yeah, <laughs> still have MRI machines, which just having had MRIs, it's like, that's amazing. That's the power of positive reinforcement. Isn't it great? Yes. Um, so I doubt that they're monkey minding as much as we are. I mean, I think a lot of that is indeed the human condition. You know, I've always mm -hmm. thought the Garden of Eden story was a great metaphor for the gift and the, the pain of human intelligence and cognition. You know, the fact that our brains can spend almost all of our time in the past and the future and not the present is not a gift to us, right? I mean, it is a gift because it means we can plan, we can strategize, we can learn from the past and strategize for the future. Um, I mean, it makes us really special, but it also it comes with a huge cost which, in which people, including me, go to meditation classes and work really, really hard to try and actually be living in the present. You know, now is now, this is now. Now is not planning your shopping list. Now is not thinking about what happened last weekend, right? So I think we all generally believe that dogs are way better at that, at being in the now than we are. Mm -hmm. But but that doesn't mean, you know, what I think we are comfortable with anyway, given what we know about neurophysiology and canine physiology compared to human, is that dogs can, like humans, be in, in a state of sort of aroused concern or alert. So with PTSD, for example, I mean, basically what that means is you can't ever quite shut down the part of your brain that's always expecting something terrible to happen. So, and it's always on alert. So you're always on fight or flight. You're always ready for something to happen. And so that's why you see these hyperreactive dogs. And that's why so many veterans or people with PTSD, um, you know, have this, this, extreme startle response. Um, and, and I mean, one of the things that's helped a lot of these veterans, for example, think, thinking of Memorial Day, um, just yesterday, is, um, is having dogs who can alert, who, who can basically be their alert system. Mm -hmm. So um, I met a just a wonderful, wonderful um, US veteran, I can't think of his name right now, I'm so sorry, it relates to this gray hair that you see. 
Um, my memory is not what it used to be. He's a wonderful man and he had severe PTSD. He could not leave the house. He was horrifically traumatized. Um, and it was a dog who allowed him to do that. And basically he said, I know when she's with me, she's watching, she's on alert. So I don't have to be. So it helped him tremendously. So, um, you know, so it makes all the sense in the world that dogs who've lost resilience or in some way have been traumatized or are just stressed um, are, are sort of on hyper alert. You know, their amygdala is working over time. Their hippocampus shrinks and gets smaller. Um, and so just, just everything we can do to help sort of dampen that down. Um, and, and, and part that's like, when is that clanking noise going to happen? When I'm going to hear that horrible noise when somebody shuts that metal door, you know? So I think that's, that's a huge part. Does, does that make sense? Yes. Um, and I want to go back to actually what you were saying about social support, because you're so yeah. right. And that's something that uh, I think a lot of people really struggle with. Uh, one is I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to, I'm sure you've had to just give people permission to go and support their dogs when their dogs are very anxious or fearful because yeah. there's this idea um, that we can reinforce the dog for being fearful if we go over mm -hmm. there, right? Um, yeah. So how do we, I mean, it's, <laughs> I almost feel like, yes, you have my permission. Yes, you're yes. allowed to go over there and support your dog. <laughs> Um, yes, Trisha and Ferdy say it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to do that. Where did that come from? Was that I don't yeah. know where this came from. Is and and I mean, if you think about it, common sense wise, you can sort of understand, you know, that if you pet your dog when your dog is fearful, you're going to make your dog more fearful. Well, I mean, I can understand, you know, if you think about it, like, well. If your dog is fearful and they come to you and you pet them, you might be reinforcing them coming to you when they're fearful, right? But that doesn't change them being fearful. That doesn't make them mm. more fearful. It makes them more likely to come to you when they're fearful. And what you want to do is get rid of the fear, right? So, so yeah, that's that's um, that's still really pervasive, isn't it? It's still really, really pervasive. So everything we can do to help the world, like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Okay. So, so and then and then you talked about like petting sometimes. Sometimes the dogs don't want to be pet, um, but just being there is important still. Uh, so, how do we know in our monkey brains? <laughs> I love you said monkey braining. Um, uh, how 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 can we help people understand? You know, when are they doing too much? When they when are they doing too much petting with their dogs? When should they just you know? take their you know sit back and and be there and just hang out uh whereas when is it is it okay to go over there and and you know give your dog a little cuddle um right. how do we help people understand uh there, how to recognize the, that the answer is simple the answer is really simple the um the actual doing it is <laughs> not but here's it's teaching people to read their dogs it's that's I mean, that's, that should be job one for the next 10 years. You know, that needs to be job one is, um, and I'll tell you every cab, every, I'm a certified applied animal behaviorist. I have a PhD. I'm not a veterinarian, 
I specialize in animal behavior. You know, I study behavior of a whole variety of species. Um, and what I was taught as an ethologist is, is really, really clear, detailed observations. And that helped me tremendously. It was sort of just about the time, you know, I got done in the late 80s. It was just about the time people were starting to really talk about reading their dogs. And I'd like to think I had a tiny, tiny influence on that. But we haven't gone close to enough. Um, I'm actually going to do a blog um, next week um, about children and and um, dogs. There's a wonderful resource. It's called Family Paws, an organization Um did you know that? Yes, I know them. Yeah, they're great. It's great work working with families and young children. Mm -hmm. children. Um, and just, you know, just, I mean, dogs tell us, they're telling us almost, not all the time. There are stoic dogs out there, right? Just like your hound. But, but dogs are usually telling us all the time. But, um, and is somebody, oh, who said it? I can't think of, somebody said, wish I'd thought of who, but somebody said, um, are you listening to your dogs talking? Or are you waiting for them to be yelling at you? <laughs> and yelling <laughs> is growling or barking or snapping or biting or, you know, that's the yelling. It's like, I told you not to pet me. <laughs> so the more, I mean, every, you know, because, because so many veterinarians, which is like, yay, wonderful, are becoming increasingly interested in behavior, which is just, the best thing ever. And, and, and they have my sympathy because there's a lot of medicine to learn and deal mm -hmm. with too, right? And now there's behavior, but, but there's some simple parts of behavior, just like there's some simple parts of medicine, right? Take your dog's temperature, right? Is he limping? There's some simple parts of behavior. And one of the, the um, simplest is to have, you know, is to have charts up on your wall of, you know, this is a happy dog. This is a stressed dog. This is a dog telling you to go away. There are a whole bunch of resources out there. Um, you know, this is green light. This is yellow light. This is red light. Um, there are just a ton of resources out there. So I wish every vet clinic had a poster of like, don't pet this dog or, you know, this dog is nervous or what a tongue flick means or what a whale eye means or what just turning its head away means. Um, the more we can do of that, I mean, every breeder who sells a puppy should do that. Every veterinarian should do that. Every training class should do that. And so, so that's how we tell. I mean, that's a long answer to your question. Sorry, Bertie. That's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, but you're, you're so right. We got to learn how to read our dogs better. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about the sense of safety and security, uh, adding social support. Okay. Um, and you know, we talk about watching our dogs a lot and, um, as an ethologist, you know, uh, I'm sure you spent, you spend a lot of time just watching animal behavior and watching animals just do their own thing. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, what else is there to building resilience here? Yeah, I think the last sort of most important thing on my list anyway, and I'd love to hear your list because I'm sure there's mm -hmm. things that you think of. Um, but but the other really, really high, high, high on my list is giving dogs agency, is giving dogs choice, is because being traumatized um, in a way that you have not recovered from um, is basically about losing choice. 
right? You know, mm. it's something happened to you that you had no control over. And so you feel like the world is out of control. Um, um, I mean, just to be very personal about it, one of the things that happened to me was that somebody, uh, a man, fell from five stories and landed at my feet and died. And so he literally fell out of the blue, just literally out of the blue. And so what my brain learned from that is you never know. <laughs> you, you know, literally, literally, um, anything can happen at any microsecond. And ironically, what the brain tries to do is prepare yourself for that, is to prepare yourself for things you can't prepare yourself for. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is irrational and you can't do it, but there's this great need to feel like you need to somehow control things because when they were quote, out of control, horrible things happened. Mm -hmm. So giving dogs who've been traumatized or have little resilience, um, giving them um, a feeling that, or giving them times in their life where they do have a lot of control. So not forcing them to meet anybody. You know, these forced interactions between dogs, for example, there's like, oh, just, we could just stop doing that. We just really could. <laughs> <laughs> we just could, you know, just let, if they want to go up and meet another dog, let them tell you, you know, let them say, and one dog might want to and the other doesn't. Dog, other dog mm -hmm. doesn't want to. And so that's our job, right? To honor the dog who said like, yeah, I'm not really ready for that. And I'm on a leash. So I can't, I can't, I have no choices, you know? So, so one sort of protecting them in those situations, watching them to see what choice they want to make. But then also there are all kinds of ways to teach them to make choices. So teach them tricks where, you know, where, they can choose to do this or that, you know. Um, I love scent work. I love, I mean, I'm not skilled. It's not one of my expertises. I do it a little bit, but I, you know, I know this much about it just enough to, you know, have fun with it. But um, uh, teaching, you know, teaching dog, letting dogs, not teaching them, letting them use their noses in some kind of a structured way where we can sort of play the game with them that's, that seems to give dogs uh, a sense of security and agency and accomplishment as much as anything I've seen, you know. Um, and one of the things actually in the human literature, it talks about, mm -hmm. about, about having a goal and building your, you know, going step by step to sort of increasing your, um, your skill in something, you know, find what you want to be skilled at. And so giving dogs something to learn and do, whether it's trick training or scent discrimination or, you know, following the scent tracking, etc., giving them something to do like that where they can build on their strengths and feel like, look what I can do, you know, look what I can do. Obviously always using positive reinforcement. I think that's critically important. Really, really, really important. And by the way, dogs will be barking. Because my husband is, is is driving up, okay. So I'm, we're always always amused, right, at all the barking. I mean, yeah, I just adore it. One welcome, my, welcome it. <laughs> one of my favorite zooms is um, is is that now infamous one where there's a business meeting and there are like twenty people on the call and one person's dogs start barking and then like literally nineteen dogs start barking. <laughs> Hysterical. If you haven't seen it, it's really funny. Anyway, it's like, you know, and I always figure like, you know, this is life, you know, we'll just, we'll deal with life and I'll, you'll see how I deal with my dog barking.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then come back to home, bounce back to homeostasis after the excitement. Exactly. There we go. There we go. Lovely. Um, So, yeah, you were talking about like teaching tricks, right? Um, And so, so there's a role in training in this and how we can give dogs um, more choice. Um, But, you know, in, in the same way, like in many people's minds, right? Training is teaching commands is making a dog listen to you. So we're talking about increasing choice and control for, for a dog. Like how is, how is training used for that? How do we convince people that, yeah, we can use training to give dogs more choice? Oh, I love that question. That's a, that's, that's a great question because that really gets to the heart of part of our challenge, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Is, is the belief that training is boot camp. The training is not teaching. And so if we could just, for one thing, just start talking about teaching, you know, we're teaching our dogs. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we are. You yeah. know, we don't talk about training our children, although, you know, and sometimes we do, but, but house, you know, we don't house train kids, but we do, we toilet train them. So I guess we do. But, um, but I mean, the, the, the quickest answer is, and sort of the simplest answer is like positive reinforcement. And so, so um, you know, when you're using positive reinforcement, if at all possible, you are waiting for the response you want, you're waiting for the behavior you want, right? And then you reinforce it. So a dog has a choice. I can sit or I cannot sit. And if I sit, I get a treat. And if I don't sit, I don't, right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of behaviors where we can do that. And I'll, I'll give you another example. It's sort of training. Well, you decide. You decide how to categorize it. But um, uh, Maggie, my older border collie, is one of those typical dogs who's like, don't, you know, I love you. I want to touch you. I want to lie on top of you at night. I want my belly rubbed. I want my chin rubbed. I want to be, but don't touch my paws. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so mm-hmm. different from us. We're so handsy, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. hi, hi, birdie. They're like, don't touch my paws. And they just, they just don't hold paws. Right. This is not something they do. So, and, and I, I was, so I was doing her nails and, and uh, I quicked her. Right. Mm. So I was clipping them and I clicked her and that was like, oh, I knew you should never touch my paws. I don't care how many treats you have. You. So I got a, um, <clears throat> a Dremel. Mm-hmm. So, so classic example of her choice. So basically is I would pick up her paw and if she held her paw in my paw, if she let it lie there, she would get a treat. If she let it lie there while I picked up the drum and turned it on, she would get a treat. If she pulled her paw away, I would stop. And, and I mean, you know, the drill, you know, everybody mm-hmm. listening, you know, we all know the drill here and yes, it takes more time. Yes, it does. And that's one of the harder cells, you know, about using that kind of method. Um, And I will, I will, I will actually tell you one, I did a modification of that, which I think some people will be appalled about, literally, some people will be appalled. But there was a point in time when I was like halfway through getting to just be able to do her nails and only give her a treat, you know, I don't know, 10 times out of the whole thing or something. I still give her treats all the time. Why not? Um, But so, um, I'd gotten busy. I'd actually gotten injured and I couldn't do her nails and they gotten really, really long. And I just, I really needed to do them and I was not going to clip them. And I got to the point where she was like, I'm done now. And it's like, 
you can't be done. I'm so sorry. You just can't be. So I did this old time livestock thing where when she pulled her paw away, I just held on to it and I squeezed the tiniest little bit. And then as soon as she relaxed it, I released. Mm-hmm. That's a form of punishment. A lot of people would be like, I can't believe Dr. McConnell did that. What a nightmare. But we got through it because she stopped doing it. You know, it just stopped, you know, and then I was right back to just, it's all your choice. It's all your choice. So I just got through that little tiny tough spot mm-hmm. um, because I just had to get her nails done. I just mm-hmm. really had to. So anyway, but, but um, that's one example. Um, you know, other examples are, say you're walking your dog, you know, I, yeah. So many dogs don't get to walk off leash. And uh, I think that's a tra- almost a tragedy. It's a little dramatic, but I think it's almost a tragedy. And, you know, when you go to um, the British Isles, for example, and every all the parks the dogs are off leash, every all the dogs are polite. You know, the, it, the dogs have so much freedom. You know, we were in Scotland and all the public areas, you're allowed to walk your dogs off leash. We went on a eight mile walk with eight dogs. In on public, you know, parkland, and it was just heaven. And I'm so lucky. I live on a farm, and my dogs are off leash. You know, mm-hmm. twice a day we go on long walks. Anyway, so dogs who can't ever be off leash, um, the least we can do is give them some agency. So you stop at a corner and you go like, which way you want to go? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or or you want to, you know, and this is the classic, and I've written about this before, and a lot of other people have too, not just me, is if you're walking your dog, ask yourself, what do you want to do? And what does your dog want to do? We humans, we want to walk, right? We're going to walk. So we're supposed to walk. So we're walking, right? And our dogs <laughs> are like pulling on the leash because they want to smell. And we're like, yes. no, 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 no. You can't spend 30 seconds smelling that. We're on a walk. Right. Yep. Yep. So I wrote a blog entitled take your dog on a sniff. And, you know, and again, I'm not the only one. It's like, I mean, that's agency, right? That's mm-hmm. take the dog out and let him explore, let her explore. And if, if, you know, often it has to be unleashed, make it unleashed, but let the dog drive the system, you know, no, they can't go into the highway you know, and eventually, usually what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll go to, um, we go off the farm on long walks once a week to give the dog something new. They haven't been somewhere new for some reason that week. Then we'll just go somewhere and we just let them sniff. So they sniff, we stop. We don't move till they move. But on the way home, we're like, okay, it's our turn. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go. <laughs> we want to walk. Gotcha. <laughs> we're ready. We're done. So like... So three halfway halfway in on the way home, we'll be like, okay, need to get back to the car, <laughs> need to get home. Anyway, yeah. so those are just a couple of examples. I'm sure you have a whole bunch of them too. Yeah, you know, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like uh, you know, with our dogs, it's a relationship, and I think in any relationship, there's always a little bit of a give and take, um, a little bit of a you know negotiation sometimes. Um, and you know, the examples you were giving about uh, you know clipping. Um, Maggie's nails because they were getting too long, right. right? And and go on a walk. And in some places, you could have the dog completely off leash, but in in other places, um, or because of a dog, you 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 can't let them off the leash because you're balancing this need for safety mm-hmm. with choice, mm-hmm. which um, I think I, I guess 
people have um, a hard time with that, right? Um, you know, the I think there are, like you said, like there are. It seems like there's more and more, um, more and more people, more and more trainers that are trying to give dogs more choice after after decades, really, if you think about like what training was in the past, it was all about taking choice and control away from dogs. And now it's, it feels like to me that a lot of times I am trying to give the animal more choice, but at the same time, I'm balancing um, right. that need for safety, right? Right. Um, you know, one thing I, I think sometimes people also struggle with, um, and I struggle this myself, you know, uh, like if I go to a restaurant and I look at the menu and there's so many good choices there, <laughs> does that, can, can we give dogs too much choice? Is that something that can happen? That's a real, I love that question. Um, I'm guessing yes. And I'm just guessing, and I want to hear what you think. Cause you asked the question. <laughs> okay. really yeah. But, um, Again, you know, there's this issue of not overwhelming dogs, you know, and um, as somebody who can get over, you know, I'm, I'm trying to not project here because I can, I'm one of those people who can easily get overwhelmed. There's sort of too much going on, too many people talking at the same time, you know, um, so I can get overwhelmed really easily. Mm -hmm. And, and um, apropos to your specific question about too much choice, there are times like my dear, patient, wonderful husband will say, what do you want to do about X? And I'll say, I don't know. I made so many decisions today. I don't want to make one. You decide. And, and that was especially true. You know, I had a radio show. I was teaching. I had 150 students at the university. I was running a business. I was seeing clients and I, was, and I had a farm and I was doing something else. I don't remember what it was. Oh, I was writing a book. And... <laughs> And I was making, I had so many choices to make. Yeah. I was making so many decisions. I was literally like, I just don't want to decide. Just somebody tell me. Just tell me what to do. I don't care. Somebody order for me. Somebody, you know, I literally understand, like, see jobs. And there are a couple of other people who just wear, like, a black T-shirt all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And they have infinite amounts of money, and their closet is, like, 40 black t-shirts or something, <laughs> right? I mean, I just, I don't know how accurate that is, but you know what I mean? Yes. I yeah. get that. I have the same thing for breakfast every single morning. And my husband is like, are you sick of that? It's like, no, I don't have to decide anything. So I'm projecting, but I can imagine that there are plenty of dogs out there, especially the, the sort of sensitive types, you know? I mean, I have border mm -hmm. collies who just- Yes, I was just thinking that. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hounds, maybe not, you know, Beagle, I don't know. Um, but, but you know, I can think of a lot of dogs who like, okay, I'm done now, you know. And I think that that speaks to the need. Our dogs need a lot of rest. And I think, you know, I love one of the wonderful things is that unlike when I grew up, when your dog's job was to um, not get in fights too often, <laughs> and not like the kids, basically, you know, we got up, we opened the door and our dog went out and mm -hmm. spent the day outside. Right. So talk about choice. Yeah. Right. Choice. Right. But so, but you know, we can't live like that now we can't, and it was very dangerous. Um, but so now, you know, I know people whose dogs are, it's like kids who are booked every night with swimming and soccer and this, 
thugs who are in agility and freestyle and this and that, and these classes and that classes. And I think it's great to some extent, but I also think we need to sit back and look at each individual dog. Like how much rest are they getting? Mm-hmm. You know, how yeah. much dogs need way more downtime than people. They sleep a lot more than people do. They need way more downtime. Um, that's another reason I, I really like crates if dogs are comfortable in them. You know, I think it's, and also some of the new research on learning, you know, there's no question that taking a rest, there's just a study came out with young children in kindergarten. They were taught to learn some new words and then they were either allowed to play some more or they were given a nap. And the kids who napped retained so much more information than the mm-hmm. kids who went to play. And there's a lot of, uh, there, there's there's certain amount of evidence that supports that in dogs. So after I work my, we have a training session on sheep, for example, I have two working sheep dogs, competition dogs. We, I put them in their crates. Mm-hmm. I pull them down and then I put them in the crates and I let them just, you know, rest. So I think dogs need a lot. Some dogs need more rest than they're getting. And mm-hmm. then other dogs need more stimulation. Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's like, it depends, right? It depends yeah. on the dog. I think um, it everything. It depends. That is, it's really true here, especially in, in the New York City area where we have a lot of doggy daycares. Mm-hmm. We have very few places where dogs are allowed to run off leash. Right. Um, right. And, and really socialize with each other. So yeah. a lot of them end up in daycare for eight hours a day for or forever how long, you know, mom and dad are at work and they get yeah. picked up. Um, and I, I, I feel like a lot of these dogs just come back completely spent and exhausted instead yeah. of yeah. content and satisfied that they had spent, you know, a day hanging out with their friends and playing, but it seems like they don't really have a choice to get away at times when they're, you know, stuck in a doggy daycare. Yeah. Um, if I was queen, that's another change I would make is that, and I know there's some daycares that do a great job with this is mm-hmm. every daycare would have would have two long breaks for dogs you know where they go somewhere quiet they're on their own they're not in the noisy kennel you know there's somewhere really sort of you know it's like it's like kindergarten has nap time because you can't let six-year-olds play all day long without them trying to kill each other I mean, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you can't. You know, I mean, there's just so much they can handle. You know, like, you know. Yeah. And I, I do wonder about those dogs, like, you know, the ones you're talking about who come back from daycare. You know, and how do how do people tell if their dog is content or or just exhausted? Yeah. I think most people are just happy, like, oh, they're just sleeping. I'm so, you know, and they don't have to deal with anything. Uh, they're not, yeah. you know, begging yeah. for food. They're not, you know, pawing at them for right. another cookie. Right, not wanting to go on a walk yeah. when they're over so yeah. tired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, well, you know, unfortunately, I think our time is running out here, running up. Um, but just to wrap things up a little bit here, um, and talking about resilience, um, and we, we, we talked about how important it is to watch our dogs and be better at reading our dogs uh, so that we can do a better job of giving them uh, a sense of safety and security, a place where they can just uh, get away from all the external stimuli. Um, uh, 
uh, giving them social support, okay? So understanding when it's okay to pet them, when to just hang out with them, and just to be there with them. Um, and giving them more agency, more mm -hmm. choice in their lives, but at the same time balancing that with their with the needs for safety. Um, and I think that all goes along with you know reading your dogs and understanding what the dogs want to do. So I, I guess I guess um, to answer your question, you know what I thought about that is if we are able to put the dog in a safe place um, where they are allowed to choose their activity that they enjoy doing whether that's sniffing right or perhaps that's just doing some trick training with you know with the with mom and dad or something mm -hmm. um you know i think uh i think we can all do you know just starting off with reading your dogs and looking at them um and having a better understanding of what what makes them happy Right? Is that right? Is that a oh, good thing? Absolutely. Yeah. What makes them thrive? I love that makes word. Thrive. Um, yeah. You know, and understanding that social support is defined by the receiver, right? Just like reinforcement is defined by the receiver. Mm -hmm. So is it other dogs? Is it you sitting next to them or is it you petting? You know, which is it? You know, but, but no, I mean, you're right on. I think you nailed it. You know, being able to read them, giving them agency, giving them some autonomy, creating a safe space. Um, you know, and having talked about, we don't have time, but, you know, the whole issue of sort of internal physiology, you know, are they getting the right food for them and their body type and their mm -hmm. activity level, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yes. that's, that's a lot for, for everybody to chew on right there. I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Wonderful. So I have one more question. Okay. So, um, you know, you, you've obviously seen a lot in the animal world and animal training, um, and that, that's shifting over the years. So um, right now, what, what gives you hope for the future of animal welfare? Oh, so much, so much. I mean, when I started, it was such a different world. It was, it was in, um, it was in the eighties. And first of all, nobody was studying canine behavior. I remember literally saying when I was in graduate school, one of my goals is to have, um, is to have dogs being a credible um, subject of scientific study because they weren't. Um, a member of my graduate committee for my PhD actually said after I did my PhD and got a big award for it, he said, well, you know, I didn't even know you could do research on dogs <laughs> because they're domestic animals and therefore yeah. they're by humans and they're not real animals. And, you know, there's a lot of garbage that came from some earlier scientists based on that. So the fact that there's this blossoming of interest in the genetics of dogs, way cool stuff going on. Early development, you know, how that influences resiliency. We haven't even talked about that because we were talking about current environment, but there's a genetic mm -hmm. aspect to resilience. There's a big early development aspect and a lot of breeders are doing wonderful things now to create resilient puppies that seem to be really working, really great stuff um, from, from understanding great training methods, from understanding how to use operant conditioning and classical conditioning from MRI studies. I mean, it's just so cool. It's just, if, if somebody wants to go into this field from, you know, from whatever perspective, from my perspective as a certified applied animal behaviorist with a PhD or veterinary um, behaviorist um, 
or a progressive trainer, you know, I mean, all levels or interested dog owners. It's, it's just, it's just an incredibly exciting time, you know, to, to be interested in this field. And then there's the whole, you know, can you teach dogs to use symbols to talk issue that's hot right now. Right. So there's, there's a lot going on and it's, it's almost all of it is good. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool to see it all. It's it almost feels like we're just it's a tip of the iceberg, really, really, that we're touching here. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was such a joy to speak to you and hear about resilience. And thank you for sharing about your own um, past and your own experiences, which I know is um, can be uh, can be hard to share with everybody. So yeah. thank you, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for all you do. Um, oh. And I I look forward to talking to you more later on other venues because your background is just fascinating if people don't know what they need to anyways <laughs> thanks again thank it was, you it was my pleasure to be here hey animal lovers thank you for joining us if you enjoyed what you heard and like to learn more please follow us on facebook or visit www.behaviorvet.com we have much more cool stuff for you if you'd like to keep geeking out on companion animal behavior with the behavior vets team Come back soon and join us on our journey to make life better for the animals in your life. Thanks again for listening. Remember to have hope because real change is possible and we can achieve it together. Enjoy our podcast, but this is a reminder that the contents of this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. The comments and advice are never intended to be a substitute for seeing a behavior professional or a credentialed veterinarian in person. While the content is always intended to help people receive the best possible behavior support for their pets, any information you utilize from this podcast is at your own risk.